Well, today, let's continue looking at God's glory. And the focus today is really how we can enjoy some of that glory. And I'd like to focus on the abundant life. You remember that Jesus said that you shall have life and life abundantly. So life to begin with, I think he's talking about eternal life, spiritual life, regeneration. But he also talks about that life lived out abundantly. And I think that's something that uh, we can experience moment by moment, day by day, as long as we're here. And certainly when we go to be with the Lord, we will have an enhanced, abundant life beyond anything that we can imagine or think. So with that short introduction, we're still in chapter 15, and we are going to focus on the last verse of the main body of the book of Romans, which last paragraph beginning in verse 7, last verse ends in verse 13. And in that, we are Seeing what Paul wrote to the believers at Rome, one of the sites that you can see, Circus Maximus, and I'm sure some of the athletic-minded believers at Rome were in attendance of the games and the races that were performed there. So this is two believers in Rome, and by way of inspiration, believers in Albuquerque as well. And we're in the last part of the teaching portion of the Book of Romans, Christian Liberty, and we're going to look at and focus on the last verse. So I'll give you a quick review. So the application relating to relationships and the possibility of conflicts within the body of Christ. So this whole last section, 14.1 through 15.13, Paul is attempting to prevent conflicts within the body. The whole thing, the whole passage deals with unity, even though he doesn't use the word, but he's trying to maintain a unified body of Christ. So preventing conflicts, particularly in these questionable areas, and we've talked a lot about that. And he's going to conclude that whole section in verse 13 that we'll focus on today. So we are to accept one another with our differing convictions, not let them divide. We are also to restrain, the stronger believer is to restrain his liberty when uh, there are those that might be offended or might uh, stumble as a result of that freedom being exercised. So that's the focus of verses 13 through the end of chapter 14. And we saw the first six verses of chapter 15 encourages us along the lines of Christ-likeness. So the responsibility of Christ-likeness. And the last paragraph, if in fact we do all that's counseled by Paul in chapter 14 and the beginning of verse 15, that will result in God's glory. And you might even see this last paragraph as something of a conclusion to everything else that Paul has talked about in this teaching portion of the book of Romans. If in fact we receive justification by faith, if in fact we are sanctified, if in fact we are on the way to glorification, and in fact 
maintaining a unity within the body of Christ that's going to result in God's glory. So 7 through 13, and we've already looked at the first few verses there. And in a passage resulting in glory, we already saw verse 7, where we are to accept one another again and sustain one another. So it's more than just acceptance. And then Paul just reminds us of this big plan of God that Christ is serving, the, the, the main purpose of Christ in terms of the broader plan of God. Uh, we looked at that in verses 8 through 12, and we saw that it was very comprehensive. And the focus here is the plan of God in relationship to Jew and Gentile. So God has a plan for both supporting this underlying idea of unity. So the the Jewish believers had to see, he concludes that with four passages from the Old Testament. And I tried to emphasize that it comes from the various parts, all of the parts of the Old Testament, probably implying that the entire Old Testament has the Gentiles in mind. So the Jewish believers were in need of accepting the Gentiles, which would have been a very difficult thing in the first century. But they're part of the plan of God, and therefore they also will bring glory to God as well. And we saw in that, the last verse there, verse 12, just a reminder, the last passage from Isaiah. Again, Isaiah says, There shall come the root of Jesse, that's the Messiah, He's the root using imagery of a stump that that root will come out of, a descendant of Jesse, and he will arise to rule over the Gentiles. Now, we might see a partial fulfillment in the church age, but I think what Isaiah ultimately in the context is in the context of restoration of Israel, and that is still future. And this ruling over the Gentiles is during the millennial kingdom, and there'll be an abundance of Gentiles that believe in the Messiah and believe in him, and therefore in him shall the Gentiles hope. Now, I want to start with that verse because it ends on the hope of the Gentiles, which will in fact be the theme of verse 13 that we'll concentrate on today. So I want to spend most of our time talking about verse 13. But before we do that, just a quick reminder here of a little illustration I used last time. The church church is like many porcupines on a freezing night. And the image there is they need to huddle together for warmth and protection. But we know that uh, we as part of the body of Christ are very prickly. So there's the potential of all these conflicts and, and problems within the body of Christ. And the emphasis of this whole section is the unity that is required and needed in order that God be glorified. So let's focus a little bit on this unity that we have not only underlying the passage, but lots of other passages. And let's look up some of these. Would somebody care to look up Ezekiel 37? And while you're looking it up, anyone want to volunteer there? Steve or Barb? Steve, probably. I got got Zechariah. Oh, you got Zechariah? Zechariah. Okay. Somebody want to 
get uh, Ezekiel. And while we're looking at those, you might, others might start looking up John 10 when we're ready for them as well. I'll do Ezekiel. Okay. Who was that? Was that Sandy? Sandy. Okay. Now let me give you the context. Ezekiel, remember Ezekiel is writing as the nation is being overrun by the Babylonians. Part of Ezekiel is written before the Babylonian destruction of the temple and the city and the destruction of the nation. And also part of the, the book is written while Ezekiel is in exile. So everything is lost. Now preceding the destruction, you saw the apostasy of the northern kingdom and the division of the kingdom, such that now there are two kingdoms. There's the northern kingdom that was essentially rebelling, and all of the kings were evil kings, and the southern kingdom survived after the destruction of the northern kingdom, but that it also kind of followed the pattern of idolatry and eventually was destroyed by the Babylonians. But Ezekiel is looking forward to a restoration. And notice, uh, beginning in verse 15, you want to read 15 through 17 of Ezekiel 37. Again, the word of the Lord came to me, saying, As for you, son of man, take a stick for yourself and write on it. For Judah and for the children of Israel, his companions, then take another stick and write on it for Joseph, the stick of Ephraim, and for all the house of Israel, his companions. Then join them one to another for yourself into one stick, and they will become one in your hand. Okay. So our tendency, as was Israel, is to depart from the Lord, to divide amongst one another. And in fact, the whole nation was divided. But God's desire is unity, and he eventually, using the imagery of two sticks that are separate, putting them together in the Ezekiel, Ezekiel passage and uniting them. Now, that will be future, and that will take place during the Great Tribulation, even future from the church age. Zechariah, similarly, 14.9, you got that one, Steve? Yes, and the Lord will be king over all the earth. In that day, the Lord will be the only one, and his name the only one. Okay, so the focus on the Lord, and that's what we need to do to maintain unity. And when we can focus on him, then all of our prickliness can fade in the background, and we can maintain unity. So one Lord, and that's also future. And if you know, Zechariah 14 is talking about the coming of Messiah. From our perspective, it's a second coming of Messiah when he sets foot on the Mount of Olives. There's going to be united focus upon him. And in the church age, even Jesus desires, anticipates, and wants unity within the body of Christ. Now, before there was a church, Notice what Jesus says in John 10, 16. Somebody get that one? Who's got it? Yep. Okay, Katie. I got it. Got it. It is, <clears throat> I have other sheep which are not of this fold. I must bring them also, and they will hear my voice, and they will become one flock with one shepherd. 
Okay, now in that context, remember Jesus came, while I'm uh, explaining it, Katie, why don't you turn to chapter 17 as well. Jesus is explaining to a Jewish believing audience and explaining the, to the disciples, he's not explicit, but he's talking about other sheep. He's talking about Gentiles. He's talking about non-Jewish sheep, if you will. But notice the design and the intention is that they be one flock, one flock. That's God's desire. And notice the prayer in John 17. This is the night before the crucifixion, after Jesus is in Gethsemane. Here's his high priestly prayer. 1711, do you want to read that one? And then skip to 20 and 21 and read those. Okay. 1711, I am no longer in the world, and yet they and yet they themselves are in the world, and I come to you. Holy Father, keep them in your name, the name which you have given me, that they may be one even as we are. Even as the Father and the Son is one, that's the desire of the Lord that we as a believing body maintain. 20 and 21 also. I can get that. I do not ask on behalf of these alone, but for those also who believe in me through their word, that they may all be one, even as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be in us so that the world may believe that you sent me. Okay. In fact, the unity of the body of Christ, the world can recognize, and it has an impact on them believing. So when we are divided, it actually is a bad testimony to the unbelieving world. This is a prayer. This is God's, Jesus' desire that we be one. Now, the central passage, why doesn't everybody turn to that one in the New Testament that encourages us? And you can jot down the other ones. We won't look them up. But all of these others encourage unity. And in chapter 4 of Ephesians, therefore, in fact, this is the beginning of Paul's applicational portion of Ephesians. The first three chapters are primarily doctrinal. And he's giving us the... Uh, the blessings that we have in Christ, our standing in Christ, our position in Christ. And then in chapter 4, he desires that that standing work itself out. It's, it's analogous to chapter 12 of the book of Romans, where the first 11 chapters are doctrinal, and then we have the applicational portion beginning in chapter 12 of the book of Romans. Chapter 4 in Ephesians is similar. Uh, that's why he starts it. I, therefore, the prisoner of the Lord, entreat you or desire or encourage you to walk. In other words, the Christian life, walk in a manner worthy of the calling with which you have been called. In other words, that calling is laid out in the first three chapters. And what does he start with? It's going to take humility with all humility and gentleness. It's going to take patience it's going to take forbearance, showing forbearance to one another. It's going to take love in love. We're pretty prickly. And then here's the key verse here. Being diligent. He has established the unity, but we are called upon to preserve it. Being diligent to preserve the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. 
And to kind of support that, there's a unity within the things of God that he expands upon in 4 through 6 there. There is one body. In other words, there are not different, there's different denominations, but we're all one body. There are different churches, but we're one body, a spiritual body. One spirit, only one Holy Spirit, just as also you were called in one hope. There's the word that we'll focus in on in the Romans passage. One hope of your calling. One Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all who is over all and through all and in all. And the desire of the Lord is that we be one body unified. Now I'll let you look at the other verses on your own if you've jotted them down. Just a reminder, the Galatians 3.28, there's neither Jew nor Gentile, male nor female, slave nor free, etc. But there's a unity within the body of Christ. So that's the thrust of the uh, whole section beginning in chapter 14, verse 1. Underlying that is Paul is attempting to maintain a unity in the church at Rome. So that results in God's glory. That's his desire. That's his will. And then he concludes with a summary prayer in verse 13. And I think he gives many of the elements of an abundant life. He's praying that we would have an abundant life. Let me read the whole verse and then we'll break it down and look at the different parts. And beginning in uh, verse 13, now may the God of hope, and notice this is his desire, may God do something. May the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace in believing so that you will abound in hope by the power of the Holy Spirit. You could even say that in one verse, Paul encapsulates all that God desires of us in the Christian walk. And what he wants us to have is abundance. Now, this is not prosperity gospel, but uh, he does desire that we have an abundance of certain things that we'll talk about here. And most of them are, are spiritual, not material. But it's framed much like what we saw earlier. Remember Paul ended, what was it, chapter 14, in something like a prayer, a wish, a desire. And he's closing the whole doctrinal section here, the whole teaching section. In fact, the whole book, before he gets into the conclusion, with another prayer. And I call it a summary prayer that summarizes something of what Paul desires, and I think it's also what God desires of us as well. So this prayer includes the God of hope, and I think he's the source of hope. And this kind of comes right after verse 12, where the Gentiles have their hope in the Messiah, so he's the source of hope. So we've talked about hope before. In fact, the idea, the concept, and the word occurs probably more in the book of Romans in both the verb form and the noun form than it occurs in any other of the books of Paul. So you might even say it's somewhat of a theme of the book of Romans, the, the concept of hope. And let me just remind oh, you. Go ahead. Can I ask you a question there? Yeah. Uh, okay, so when you say it's the source of hope, 
that that kind of sounds like the fruit of the spirit. Well, you know, um, and of course, hope is not included there. But uh, we're, I guess the implication is that there must be, you're thinking of this in a passive voice sense mm-hmm. for some reason. I don't know what it is. Okay. So what's the question? I don't, I didn't get the question. Well, I don't know what the, you're, uh, I, I don't know, you're communicating this in a way and I'm not, and I'm not disagreeing with it or anything. Okay. But you're, you're communicating with it in such a way that it sounds uh, like it, like there might be a related scripture that would, would uh, communicate this with a, with uh, a passive voice sense speaking verbally. Well, later on, he talks about so that you will abound in hope. So I think both concepts are involved. We only have hope because of what God has done, and it only comes from him in that passive sense, but it's also something that we, we have in, I guess you could have in an active sense, and we can abound in it. I don't know if that clarifies what you're thinking there. But well, I, I think no. I, I think I get it. That that must the of hope must be in the possessive. I think I take it somewhat possessive, or yeah, in the sense of the God who is the source of hope. It's related, obviously, with the noun God there, and okay. ultimately, hope comes from Him. But it's something that we experience as well. In fact, uh, that's part of the whole thing that he's talking about here. He wants us to abound in it, and we can grow in it. But I think we grow in it as we uh, experience this abundant life that I think he's praying for, that we would experience an abundant life. But uh, maybe as we go through it, it might uh, add to uh, what you're questioning here. Okay, pardon my uh, oh, no problem. Anytime. In fact, I I want everyone to feel free to do that whenever something is not clear, especially, or if I say something inadvertently that's not correct. Well, let's talk about the relationship between faith and hope. There's a distinction between the two. They're two different words, first of all. And faith is simply trusting in our Lord. And you might even think of it as a moment-by-moment experience. We trust in Him day-by-day, moment-by-moment, and we trust in Him today. Whereas hope has more of a future perspective, but it is also based on our faith. In other words, if our faith is in the right place, then we will have a hope for what God is going to do in the future. And that the biblical concept of hope is not a wish. You know, we in the English language, when we say, well, I hope I get to uh, see that movie, or I hope that a friend comes and visits me, or I hope for something. And when we use the, the word hope, most of the time we're thinking in terms of, I wish that this would happen. That's not the biblical concept. It's not a wish. So you need to kind of put that away from your thinking when you come up with the biblical word for hope. And we'll look up some passages that kind of reinforce what I'm getting at here. Instead, go ahead. Um, When you're talking about hope, 
We have our hope that the Lord Jesus will take us home, but we have that because he has given us the faith to believe his word. That's right, and that's the relationship. It's based on our belief on what the Lord has said and what he has promised. It is a forward and or a future look, but it's not a wish. It's a full confidence, and I think that's a good word, a full confidence in what God will do in the future because of what Denise said, because we believe what he has said, because we believe in the promises that God has made. And like I said, it occurs frequently in uh, the book of Romans. You might turn back to it, and if somebody wants to read those few verses there, this also gives the idea that this is an experience that comes as a result of growing, as a result of fellowship with the Lord. And notice the string of things that he puts together here, but uh, start with verse 2. Someone want to get that one? Well, Okay, go ahead, Denise. Through whom? Actually, I think I need to start with, with one. Go because ahead. it that's that's the word. Therefore, having been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Now, let me stop you there. He's going to talk about peace later on in the verse. And I think it's a different peace than the one that we have here. I'm just calling your attention to it. This peace comes as a result of justification. Does that make sense? That's the context of the peace here. When we look at verse 13, we'll come back to it. The piece there, I think, is a different piece. I'll explain that when we get to that point. Keep reading. Keep reading verse 2 through 5. Through whom also we have obtained our introduction by faith into this grace in which we stand. And we exult in hope of the glory of God. Okay, we exult in it. In other words, we brag about it. We we can boast about it. We can glorify God about it. So that even that little note there gives you a sense of confidence. Keep reading. And not only this, but we also exult in our tribulations, knowing that tribulation brings about perseverance, and perseverance proven character and proven character, hope. Okay, stop there. Notice it's as a result of many experiences, and some of these are hard experiences, tribulation, proven character, in other words, development and the involvement of God. And as we see God getting us through tribulation, as we see him developing character within us, that gives us confidence in what God is going to do in the future and that's why he says, proven character, hope. And then he adds to that in verse 5. Finish it off. And hope does not disappoint because the love of God has been poured out within our hearts through the Holy Spirit who was given to us. Okay, so that hope is based on God working in our experience, in our life, to develop us, to mature us. That gives us a hope that he's going to continue and finish that good work that he began. And as the verse indicates there, it's God that is doing the work at the end of verse 5 there. So 
even in uh, chapter 5 of the book of Romans, and in fact, we could even look to a closer context in uh, chapter 15. We, we saw that idea of hope in verse 12, and we started off with that, with that passage. Would somebody care to look up 2 Corinthians 1-7, where we have a passage that gives us the idea of this full confidence as the meaning underlying the idea of hope. I will. Sandy? And our hope for you is steadfast because we know that as you are partakers of the sufferings, so also you will partake of the consolation. So his hope is based on things that he can observe in uh, the Corinthians. It's a steadfast hope. It's a hope based on the knowledge that he knows about them. So it's not a wish. It's full confidence. Philippians 1.20. Someone want to look at that one? And somebody else look up the Hebrew 6 passage. Who's got Philippians? Anyone? Anyone got Hebrews? You can read more than once. I'll do Philippians 1.20. Okay. I got Hebrews. Okay. Steve's got Hebrews. Is that Steve? Yes. Okay. Go ahead, Denise, do Philippians. According to my earnest expectation and hope that I will not be put to shame in anything, but that with all boldness, Christ will even now, as always, be exalted in my body, whether by life or by death. Okay, so he's looking forward, but notice he couples earnest expectation and hope. Earnest expectation coupled with hope together there, giving you that sense of hope having substance, having full confidence. And then one of the strongest passages, Hebrews 6, particularly 18 and 19, but we need to start in verse 11. Go ahead, Steve, read verse 11 and then skip to 18 and 19. Okay, and... We desire that each one of you show the same diligence so as to realize the full assurance of hope until the end. See that? Full assurance of hope. Full assurance or full confidence of hope. Go ahead. Skip to 18 and 19. Okay. I got it. So that by two unchangeable things in which it is impossible for God to lie, We who have taken refuge would have strong encouragement to take hold of the hope set before us. This hope we have as an anchor of the soul, a hope both sure and steadfast, and one which enters within the veil. Okay. Notice all the words, the unchangeable things in which it is impossible for God to lie, and our hope is in what God has said and promised. And this hope is like an anchor, stability, assurance, confidence, sure and steadfast, one which enters within the veil. So that's the biblical concept of hope that he is praying for, that the God of all hope will fill us And later on in the verse, that you will abound in hope. So we can look at that and list some things that that, uh, bring about the abundant life. And the source of abundant life is the God of hope. 
And he's set before us these promises that we can focus in on. And when we are focused on what God is going to accomplish, it doesn't matter what happens in our present circumstances. We can go through tribulation. We can go through hardship. In fact, all of those things even develop and strengthen our our hope. So it's based on the God of hope. Now the verse goes on, now may the God of hope fill you. And he's going to, we'll expand on what he's going to fill us with. And then there's the abounding again, that you will abound. In other words, he wants us to be overflowing, in this context, joy and peace. And this is why I kind of use the image here of a full table full of food, kind of abundance, if you will, the abundant life, the abundance here, being filled, full. And when we were in Israel, we were living the abundant life. Not only were we walking in the same steps and areas that the Lord Jesus Christ lived and ministered and the early church and the disciples, and we were filled with just the sense that this is where all the biblical events or many of the events took place. But each evening, we also lived the abundant life in that we had a buffet dinner with all kinds of variety of food. Now, that's just an image. And I think the image here uh, transfers into the spiritual life that God wants us to experience. And it's, it's a, a, a life of fullness, not boredom, not dread, not anything that keeps our focus away from the Lord, but he wants us to be filled. It's, a, it's an abundant life. In fact, I only eat one meal per day, but I attempt to live the abundant life all the same. Now, may the God of hope fill you with all. This is what he wants to fill us with. And Jim was alluding to the fruit of the Spirit. And here we have joy and peace. And I think Paul, had he wanted to, he could have included all of the fruit of the Spirit. But he begins with joy. And we part of the abundant life is we can have joy. And that joy is not dependent on circumstances. It's different from happiness, The world seeks happiness, in other words, a good feeling or a good sense at any time. But what the Lord wants to give is a joy that is not dependent on circumstance. And this is an experience. This is experientially. He's talking about the living out of the Christian life. And again, we can be in difficult circumstances, but no one can take away our inward joy and peace. That's why I said in this context, I think he's talking about this experience of peace, not what he was talking about in chapter 5, verse 1 that we just read. That is peace with God, and it's a positional peace as a result of justification and forgiveness of sin. And in fact, that verse even talks about it as being an introduction to grace, This peace is the peace that we can experience as a result of living life every day. Everything around us can be in turmoil. Everything can be falling apart. Everything can be going south. 
And in the midst of that, the abundant life is to have and be able to maintain that peace that only the Holy Spirit can give. So that's the abundant life, is having a life of joy and a life of peace. Steve? Yeah. um, Earlier this week, uh, we were driving somewhere or something, and Barb uh, brought up uh, something that she read uh, that's going on in, you know, all our eyes are on Afghanistan. If you want to have a good illustration of this hope in action, there are a number of Afghani believers who have in mind that these this is their last days yep and they're going they're going door to door uh knocking on doors sharing christ with people so this is this is real hope in action and um i'm sure they're a little bit nervous about the future but nevertheless their focus is on what they can do today Yep. Uh, and share that with others. It's kind of a striking application of what you're talking about. Yeah, and a vivid example. Very good, yeah. And that this is real. This is what we can experience. In fact, this is what God desires. He wants us to live the abundant life. He wants us to have joy in the midst of difficult situations, joy and peace. I've got a list here. That blessedness that he wants us to be filled with is the joy and peace that we have in the passage. And he adds here, in believing. And what we can add to what he's saying here is what he means by in believing. This is not believing for justification or believing for salvation, but this is the means by which we experience the peace because we are trusting that passages like Romans 8.28, that God is working all things for our good. And again, everything can be going wrong, but in the midst of that, we can believe that even as difficult a circumstance that we may be facing, or this is what the Afghanis, the ones that Steve described, this is what they're doing. They are trusting that God is going to work it, and they're going to use them until the last breath that they have. So the means by which we experience the joy and the abundant life is by moment by moment trusting him. This is why this is a summary prayer, a summary of what God desires for us today. And there's a purpose for it so that you will be, in fact, as we trust in him, so that you will abound in hope. In other words, we'll have full confidence, full assurance, and it'll abound such that that hope is far greater than the pain and the difficulty that we may be experiencing in the present, present time. So the purpose of this prayer and the purpose of what God is working through us is that we might abound in that hope that uh, is available to us as we trust in him. And then the verse concludes by the uh, empowerment that we need. It's not just by gutting it out. It's not by determination. It's not by our own efforts. It's not by trying to keep our attitude right, but it's by the power of the Holy Spirit. And that goes back to in believing, 
We believe that the Holy Spirit empowers us because that's the source of the abundant life. So we have a magnificent little conclusion here to the book of Romans that leaves us with all of the elements of an abundant life. And I would encourage you to memorize the passage and turn it into a prayer for yourself that especially as you face maybe a difficult situation or a circumstance that you don't understand or a circumstance that is a little bit confusing to you. So some of the elements of an abundant life, first of all, we know that it comes from the God of hope and he desires that we be filled so that it is an abundant life and filled with joy and peace as we moment by moment trust in him. So we need to maintain fellowship. If that fellowship is broken, then we need to go to him and confess the sin that has broken that fellowship, re-establish ourselves in fellowship with him, and as we trust in him, he will encourage us in terms of abounding in hope. The trials, the difficulties are only temporary. They will end, and God has promised that he will fulfill everything that he has said in his word, and in the whole process, it's the Holy Spirit that empowers us. So that's a, a fitting conclusion to the, the book of Romans is Paul's summary prayer that you and I would experience the abundant life. Well, in the few minutes that we have remaining here, let me just give you kind of a preview of what we want to look at when we get into the conclusion. Now, no one, after we get going through this summary here, no one will be able to say that we did not complete the book of Romans, right? I said that before when we completed uh, chapter, what, 11? Well, here we go again. So the bulk of the book is the provision of God's righteousness. This is after an introduction of 17 verses. We spent some time in uh, chapters 9 through 11 where God's righteousness is vindicated we just completed today the application of God's righteousness, chapters 12 through the middle of 15. And now beginning in chapter 15, almost a chapter and a half, 47 verses, Paul is going to conclude this book of Romans. And let me just give you an outline of what he's going to do. He's going to lay out some of the purposes that he had in mind in writing and uh, that is going to begin in uh, verse 14. Let me just read it real quick. And now concerning you, he's going to commend them, first of all, and then he's going to get into the purposes. And concerning you, my brethren, I myself also am convinced that you yourselves are full of goodness. In other words, he is acknowledging that the prayer that he offered in verse 13 the uh, Romans are experiencing something of that. They're full of goodness, filled with all knowledge, and able also to admonish one another. In other words, they are a growing group of believers. But I have written very boldly. So now he's going to explain some of the purposes that he has in writing. And we'll look at the detail of that next week, Lord willing. And then, beginning in verse 22 through 33... And by the way, there's a lot of parallels between the conclusion and the introduction. He has already mentioned that he has a desire to visit them, and he's going to reiterate some of those plans 
and even plans that go beyond the Romans as well. So he's going to lay out those plans in uh, verses 22 through the end of the chapter. And then chapter 16 primarily deals uh, 24 verses of personal greetings, where apparently Paul knew many of the members of the churches in Rome. And it's also in that context that we see that there are several churches, not just one larger church, several smaller churches, some of them house churches. And he's going to greet several people by name, 24 verses. And then he's going to conclude the entire book. It's almost like he has several conclusions to the book of Romans, but this is the the ultimate and final conclusion where it's more of a doxology of praise. So a praise doxology, verses 25 through 27, the last verse of the book of Romans. So we've completed the book of Romans today, at least the last part in summary form. But we'll come back and we'll look at the purposes of Paul next week. And then in the following weeks, we'll look at the plans of Paul, the personal greetings of Paul, and the praise doxology of Paul. Any comments? Right. Yeah, verse 13 really does express something like uh, the fruit of the Spirit. Yeah, I think verse, so. And that's the abundant life. Living in the, with the fruit of the Spirit, that's the abundant life where we're experiencing the fullness of what the Spirit has, and it affects our attitudes, our, our lives, our words, our relationships, etc. So let me just conclude with a little question here. Is Paul's prayer being answered in your life? And if not, then uh, you have some sin to confess. And if so, we can praise him and uh, glorify him as Paul desires in uh, the book of Romans here. Connie, who do we pray for today? Today is Sharon. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you that you are the God of hope and that in the midst of all of our circumstances, you do give us joy and peace. Father, I, I pray for Sharon in this low pressure system that's coming through that you would uh, give her relief from the pain in her hands, um, also from her cough, Lord, that you would restore her to health. Uh, Father, that you would watch over her friend, Alicia, uh, give her wisdom as to know whether or not to continue the, the relationship with this newfound um, friend, um, that you would help Sharon to be able to keep typing for her church and all of the many mission projects they are involved in, especially the campground. Uh, Father, that you would provide funding uh, so that buildings could be built uh, so that the campground would be able to be used by many um, for Sharon's plans for trips to the U.S. I pray that you would open doors before her uh, with uh, driver license, driver's license, if that's what you want her to have, um, and uh, even travel plans. I pray that her aunt's 100th birthday celebration would be a time of great rejoicing and remembering. Well, Father, we lift to you um, 
your church around the world, uh, whether it be Norman's small church where he's teaching or Afghani Christians, um, the Franklin Graham God Loves You Tour. Father, your church, your believers, your body, the body of Christ. Lord, I pray that you would strengthen us for the times ahead, um, even in the coming week, Rosh Hashanah and the, the remembrance of 9-11. Uh, Father, for whatever it is we may face in the future, uh, I, I pray that you would strengthen us, strengthen our Afghani brothers and sisters. 